This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey everyone, welcome to the 106th edition of DF Direct Weekly. This is, as always, our weekly show where we discuss the latest gaming and technology news. Big bunch of stories to get through this week. Joining me first of all, Oliver McKenzie. Hey Rich, how's it going? <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. And uh, of course, John Linneman. Hey guys, it's great to be here and uh, it's nice to be on another one with Oliver here. It's Absolutely. Likewise. Good times, I think. <laughs> Lots of stuff to talk about. For those wondering, Alex is actually taking holiday, which, uh, you wow. know, we can't have that, can we? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, let's move on to the first news topic. Uh, so this was a story posted by a guy called Tom Henderson on Insider Gaming. It's completely unverified at this time, but there have been various rumblings uh, that this may have some meat to it. And it is the story of a potential handheld coming from Sony, uh, which would attach to PlayStation 5 and allow for um, essentially, I guess, streaming of gameplay, remote play style. I don't think there's much of a suggestion that it's some kind of uh, Steam Deck-like autonomous system. It's uh, a, you know basically a second screen, uh, which enable you to play PlayStation 5 games in a similar way, I guess, to the old Wii U controller. I'm going to go to you on this one, Oliver, first of all. Um, first of all, thoughts is it a good idea and um is it what we need for playstation at this time well in terms of whether it's a good idea or not i think it's interesting because in the past sony has done these big dedicated devices like the ps vita and the psp and i think that <laughs> recent history has basically seen them sort of consolidate more efforts around their very successful home consoles and i think in that sense yeah. it's a good move because you launch an accessory like a PSVR style device or or this PSQ style device or whatever it ends up being, and you don't take as many risks and you have access, immediate access to a big library. But uh, I can't help but feel a little bit disappointed because I love Sony's portables. I mean, I have uh, Absolutely. two PS Vitas right here to show for it. <laughs> and I think they do a tremendous <laughs> they do a tremendous job with premium hardware, and I can't help but feel like this isn't premium hardware. You know, it's a streaming device that is uh, ultimately maybe not super interesting, although it depends on how they're actually going to be doing maybe local streaming. Maybe that'll be a bit more interesting, but it doesn't seem like a super exciting device. Um, I like the idea of basically being able to take your PS5 gaming away from the main screen. I think that's actually a really strong um, benefit to Nintendo Switch is that you're not tethered to any particular room, any particular screen. And um, obviously the limitations of the device would be according to you know network traffic and network speed uh john i think you're going to side with oliver on this one that you really wanted a dedicated device right yeah so um, this sort of device does have a very different sort of market potential than uh, a ps vita or a psp and there's there's pros and cons to it that i could see this actually kind of reminds me of the do you guys remember the xperia play phone oh yeah yes, I had one. Mm -hmm. yeah it basically shares a design sort of a design language with the psp go where it sort of slides out but that was not a real 
PlayStation style platform, right? It was just no. sort of borrowing that that legacy there. This is this Q Lite idea, though. I suspect this is born out of the the realities that both Sony and Nintendo have faced over the years in regards to developing for multiple platforms, right? It's difficult to support two completely unique machines. Uh, and that's probably why Nintendo went for the whole Switch model in the first place. I can't imagine Sony wanting to return to the split hardware model, even though they're already kind of doing that with PSVR to some degree, right? Because it does require unique games. Uh, so... I'm sure that they would like to have a portable unit, but don't want to support it with its own software. And that's where this makes sense. The problem is, is, well, there's two problems for one. First of all, streaming is, uh, streaming over mobile is extremely limited these days. I've, at least based on the experiences I've had, uh, it doesn't work very well. It requires too much bandwidth. The video quality is poor. Uh, it's just not a great experience all around. But if you were to simply tether it to your system within the house, that could build upon current systems such as the remote play functionality. But uh, I think, Rich, you actually just tested that again, and remote play is, unfortunately, rather poor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I, I basically, I've never played remote play on PlayStation 5. I played it on um, PlayStation 4 for, I guess, I don't know, we did, a yeah. day. Someday, just to test it, yeah. And essentially, the video quality was poor and uh, the latency was unacceptable. But a lot of people liked it, right? Um, however, I did just play um, PlayStation 5 Remote Play for the first time ever in what I would consider ideal conditions in that my PlayStation and my PC, which I'm streaming to, uh, were both wired connections, right? Uh, the latency was really uh, subpar. Um, bearing in mind that I'm now used to stuff like GeForce Now, which is an actual proper cloud streaming system. This was palpably worse than that. And um, although I was using it on, I was using it in a small window on my 43-inch, 42-inch OLED, small window, I could still see compression artifacts. It would be lessened on an even smaller screen, but I don't see remote play as being capable of delivering a premium experience worth investing in a specific device for as a value add to your you know to a phone or to an existing you know laptop or whatever you know it does the job and if you're not playing an action game happy days right but you you mostly are i guess and it's not great <laughs> does playstation 5 does support like wi-fi 6 i believe or like a higher end standard um does it? I'm not sure. I guess we could quickly Google it. But what's the point? Well, I, I guess my idea is that the current re remote play uh, setup is based on sort of an older standard that they set up for PlayStation 3, maybe even originally. I'm sure it's changed since then, but it's sort of an old setup where here, if they were to engineer a device specifically for PlayStation 5, they might be able to come up with a better means of connection, right? Uh, but that doesn't solve the uh, away from home problem where you might have to rely on cloud streaming and cloud streaming again on the go. Uh, th in theoretical terms, there are ways you can do this, even on things like an airline, right? Like people talk about this. Oh yeah, you can do the cloud, no problem. But in reality, in terms of the actual like use case for the average person in the most common scenario, it's not going to work that well. 
Like connections just aren't that reliable in these places. And I feel like all of the different use cases one might have for this, like, oh, I'm going on a long flight or I'm taking a train somewhere. Uh, those are exactly <laughs> the places where the signal is most compromised and I you're think, likely yeah. to have a poor experience. So, you know. You you are right, though. It does have Wi-Fi 6. And in theory, it should be able to stream high bandwidth um, you know, data streams exactly. quite successfully. However... You know, basically, I think most of the latency is actually built into the media block on the console itself. You know, basically, uh, the, the idea of taking the image and, and compressing it and then beaming it over, that whole process is actually done on chip. Um, there may well be, you know, faster alternatives. Um, but certainly remote play, uh, as it is right now, I, I don't think they could sell a device around it. I think it would have to be something separate, bespoke, and <sighs> eminently superior to that. So, you know, I wouldn't say it's completely off the table. Um, but, you know, I, I remember um, <laughs> back in the day, do you remember the Wii U? Obviously, the Wii U had its direct streaming, and I think yeah. we all agreed that that was actually was rather good, right? Quite good, yeah. yeah. I actually have... I have some props today, <laughs> but I got my gamepad right here. And this thing is, you know, this is awesome. Like it's just super low latency, lower latency than most displays that people would have had hooked up to the Wii U. And the actual like bit rate of this thing, it's not crazy high, but it works for its intended purpose. And if they could yeah. do some sort of direct device to device um, streaming system, because I think the Wii U's was based on uh, the Wi-Fi technologies of that era. If they could do something similar, I think it would be a very, very compelling device for home use, which is like probably a, a very large proportion of the scenarios in which people are using a like a Nintendo Switch, for instance. So I don't, to me, that that seems like a compelling product. I don't have much interest in remote play given the latency involved, even on, on a home network. But if they could do a device-to-device -device streaming with very low latency, that would be a really interesting device for a lot of people, I think. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any any hope at all that uh, Sony would ever resurrect the dedicated handheld? And the reason I, I, I put that forward is that um, basically GCN compatibility, the, the architecture of PlayStation yeah. 4, um, backwards compatibility is baked into all existing AMD architectures because it has to be, because Sony and Microsoft are their you know, key customers, right? So... At some point, I do think that their mobile chips that they're producing will be able to do flawless PS4 backwards compatibility, em uh, not emulation. Is that yeah. a device that could work? Mm. Let's let's say you know um, they can actually shrink the existing PlayStation 4 APU, and you know actually produce a device that would allow you to play all PS4 games on the go. Do you think that would be compelling, or is it basically? Yeah. I think that that could be compelling, or I was considering, and this might be more challenging to pull off, but if Sony had an equivalent to the Series S, right, where it's like a, a downscaled version of their larger console into a dedicated handheld format, uh, obviously that would not just mean that you could use current PlayStation 5 games natively without some sort of update or patch, but, you know, I like the idea of a, of a little system like that. But as far as PS4, PS4 is a difficult one specifically because even though it is still a viable machine, I could see them not being fully on board with the branding side of things where it's like, oh yeah, uh, if you want to play PS4 games from 10 years ago, here's a handheld that we just released to do that, right? Like that feels counterintuitive to their messaging, which is why I feel like a shrunken down PS5, which again, that would 
that would not be an easy device to make, <laughs> but it's not impossible either, I would say. Yeah, I think it would be very difficult to make. Um, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's for sure. I think the idea of basing it on the PS4 library, as cool as it sounds, inevitably means that at some point there's just not going to be any new games for it. Yeah, exactly. Unless this thing really takes off. It's it's uh, a little bit of a yeah. bizarre idea, the idea of extending out a 10-year-old console. Yeah, maybe with new software, but with a new device. <laughs> I think technically it's becoming, in, maybe in the realms of possible, but uh, just as a product device, I, I don't really understand where Sony would do it. It's a funny example, and I don't think it would happen here, but Sega did this twice, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, the Game Gear is functionally very much a master system. It actually has some uh, improvements as well. And then there was the, uh, sadly, not very successful uh, Sega Nomad, which was a handheld version of the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive, which released at the tail end of its life, while the Saturn was already available. So, but I don't think modeling 90s Sega behavior is, is a wise move for Sony, to be honest, but it has happened. I actually saw the Nomad years before it came out. Uh, really? Sega Europe, yeah. Um, it took, and it did take years to come out. That's the problem, it right? It didn't come out of Europe either. It was just, I think it was America exclusive. But, you know, if you could just imagine we were sort of like, I guess wow. towards the tail end of the Mega Drive era, I was in uh, the uh, offices of the marketing director of Sega Europe at the time, and he was talking about the 32X and the Saturn. So this would be like 93, 94, and um, likely 93. And then, you know, he just got out this little black device from his drawer and it was a portable Mega Drive. Can you imagine oh how mind-blowing that yeah. would have been? It was just absolutely astonishing. and um, But yeah, it took so long to come out. And then it only came out... It, did it come out in Japan? I don't think so. I think it's so uh, just, America exclusive. Yeah, man. What a, well, that was just astonishing. I have one. Nobody it's, believed me when I told them. It's a neat machine, but it's, uh, yeah, it's super weird. And the battery pack <laughs> requires AA crazy. batteries. Uh, and it's an external thing that affixes to the back of the unit. So uh. it makes it even bulkier. <laughs> It's not great. So, Oliver, final thoughts on a PlayStation handheld? Uh, I mean, I'd love to see Sony do a, a real one, um, but I think this device—I <laughs> think this device sounds interesting. And I mean, I think to me, it really comes down to can they find a really good use case for it in the home? Because I don't have very much confidence in remote play working out well in the field, especially not on a home network. But if they can do something direct with device to device, I think that's a potentially very compelling product that I'd be interested in, and. You know, I mean, the other specs sound reasonable, like an 8-inch screen, 1080p60, all sounds fine. Maybe an LCD, hopefully an OLED, maybe probably not, um, given the status of the device as an accessory. But the rest of the stuff sounds good. I think it really just comes down to getting a low-latency game feed onto that device. Man, though, the description of an 8-inch LCD with uh, DualSense-like controls on either side of it, that sounds like a very large unit. Oh, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> no... The thing Sony does, well, I was going to say they used to have an obsession with aesthetics that was uh, valued sort of the sleek form factor, but then they released the PS5. So I guess everything, you know, anything could happen at this yeah. point. But well, that, they, they also released the PS3 Super Slim. That's true. Which is like possibly the most ugly console I think I've seen. It looks good in white, though. It's actually a, a nice looking machine in the white color, I think. Not that bad, but it is very cheaply made. Uh, but yeah, I, I, this, this whole thing, I don't, I don't know. 
<laughs> well, John, let's put it this way. Let's say it was like a Wii U uh, controller in terms of, uh, you know, response. Do you think it would work then? Do you think there'd be a I market mean, for it? I, let's ask Nintendo. Do you think there's a use case for the Wii U? <laughs> like, well, you I could mean... you could argue that the Switch is a is a, an evolution of the best things of the Wii U. Yeah, and but it's specifically the Switch solves the issue where the Wii U requires you to be tethered to the console, right? Which was one of its limitations. Yeah. Uh, so you know, it's I, all I, to prove, really, yeah. isn't it? I don't really like the idea that much. I mean, I, I could see it potentially working, but I really hope they don't necessarily go down this route. I think that would not okay. be the best move, especially in, a, in, a, in the land where we have the Steam Deck and <laughs> competing handhelds. And switch to imminent. Yes. Uh, yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to the next news topic. Uh, we're not done with handhelds. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, bizarrely, on April the 1st, uh, Asus... Uh, showcased a new device, a handheld uh, portable PC, similar to the INEO2 and Steam Deck and whatnot. Uh, it's Windows 11 based. Um, as is the case with Asus ROG products, there are some in insane specifications here. A 1080p 120 hertz screen uh, with VRR, which, which, is, which is pretty awesome, right? Um, yeah, the Asus ROG Ally, um, not quite sure when it's coming, but Linus Tech Tips has already done a, a kind of hands-on with it. And um, yeah, it seems to be using the new four nanometer uh, chips from AMD, which would be, uh, I guess, the, the Phoenix Point uh, yep. line, which uh, Oliver talked about recently. Um, wow. I mean, I think it's really fantastic. First of all, that the concept of a handheld PC is actually gaining traction. It's not just the Steam Deck. We seem to be getting a whole sort of range of competing devices, which I think is fantastic. Um, the idea that ASUS, with all of its uh, engineering power, is, is bringing a device to market, fantastic. The fact it's using a state-of-the-art SOC, um, I mean, they're talking about 50% performance boost over Steam Deck at the same wattage. And, wow. and uh, Yeah, and uh, 100% boost to performance at 35 watts, which, uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's just going to drain your battery incredibly <laughs> quickly, but I guess this will, like, docked play. Also, um, an eGPU output, so you can literally connect an RTX 4090 to it if you wanted to. Um, Oliver? Thoughts on this one? Because I know that you're quite invested in handheld PC play. Yeah. So I think the, the performance aspect of it, to me, that's what immediately stood out. Because people were quoting that two times figure without also mentioning that it's two times the performance on a more modern device at 2.3 times the wattage <laughs> on a device <laughs> yes. pulling 35 watts on a device that's probably going to have a comparably sized battery to the Steam Deck, which has a 40 watt hour battery. And we all know how quick the Steam Deck can go at 15 watts. So at 35 watts, I imagine you'd be sub one hour in all likelihood on that device. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I don't. It's not. It's not twice as fast as, as the Steam Deck under reasonable use. It's 50% faster. If we take their quoted uh, numbers at face value, that's much more realistic, and that's how people should think about it. At least as a portable device, it does have a two-fan design, so the thermal solution looks beefier, appropriately so. And that part at least looks interesting to me. Like I, I'm definitely glad that someone is taking the Steam Deck device concept and pushing it, even if it's with probably will be commodity um, components in terms of the Phoenix Silicon, because I think that's showing up in a lot of devices. In terms of the physical form factor of it, I'm a little bit more mixed about it because like. If you look at the Steam Deck, you have these big grips on the back, right? 
mm-hmm. and it's really yeah. nice and you get like these big buttons and big grips and it feels really nice in the hand and this doesn't seem to have that as much it's much more like a little curve on the back side I actually like the stick layout uh, quite a bit, maybe more than the Steam Deck, just because it's a more conventional stick layout and the thumbsticks are oriented towards the sides of the device, which maybe makes it more comfortable. On the display side, it sounds like an LCD based on what they're quoting for the pixel response times, which they quoted seven yep, milliseconds, yep. which you wouldn't quote that if you were if it was an OLED. And uh, yeah, 1080p 120 is, is a ridiculous <laughs> thing, but uh, you know, 1080p 60, who knows? I think it might be in the ballpark with that, with uh, like last gen games maybe, but. Just some VLR thoughts. is certainly certainly a value. Oh, huge, uh, huge, yeah. yeah. Linus also rated it at 500 nits in terms of brightness which is measurements, super bright. which yeah. is ridiculous, honestly. <laughs> yeah, the Ioneo 2 devices do 400, and that looks really, really uh, vivid and fantastic. Yeah, so this, you know, uh, there's, it's really interesting to see that uh, Valve basically aimed uh, to get a device to market, you know, with a certain price point in mind but you know everybody else is is basically taking those specs and running with them producing better things but also uh i, I suspect there'll be an inflated price point to, to boot on that um yeah. i guess yeah um i'm just trying to think of uh, things that i don't know the, the the main bugbear i have with these devices is windows so that's that's what i was going to talk about here and i feel like this is uh this is not the the correct choice for a handheld like this. And this sort of fundamentally misunderstands why the Steam Deck works as well as it does. Is that, you know, Steam OS, uh, with it, all of its custom driver work and everything that, that Valve has done on that side, it allows it to actually function more like a proper console. And you're also given a lot of additional flexibility in terms of how you configure your games. What I think I would like to be seen here, and there's nothing to stop these manufacturers from using Steam Steam OS, right? Like I think mm. they absolutely could. Uh, uh, I would well, like- yeah. I mean, it do- it would require assistance from Valve. I mean, there's nothing That's- stopping you putting a Linux uh, distribution, a customized right. Linux on there. But uh, what my point is that I'm actually maybe they simply haven't gone to Valve for this, but I'm surprised Valve hasn't made more of a push in this regard. Uh, even though yes, they sell their own hardware, but I think it would behoove them to. Uh, work with these uh, other OEMs to create devices that are built to run SteamOS properly and mm. support all of the features of the Steam Deck because it's for Valve it's not just about selling Steam Decks it's also about pushing SteamOS and their their Linux dream right well and yeah the entire the entire concept is about getting uh, more people into the Steam ecosystem buying more games exactly. on Steam but uh shipping windows on one of these devices i just don't <laughs> think windows in its current form anyway is a great experience for a portable unit it it sort of kills that plug and play design that you would hope for uh it 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 means it does not really function like an actual console might right uh yeah and actually i'm not sure about this rich I, I actually forget but is it possible to do like proper sleep modes within windows like where you just like tap the button, the game goes off, and then you tap it again, and you're back into it instantly. Yeah, this this sort of thing is reasonably well done because it kind of has to be. Um, I mean, it kind of works laptops. like that on laptops, right? But- yeah. The main issue is that Windows 11 simply isn't designed uh, as a kind of sleek operating system no. for low-power devices. So if you're going to put standard Windows 11 on a mobile device... All of those background processes that are there on your desktop PC are also there on the uh, yeah. on the on the 
on the handheld and it's it's not ideal right um there's also been issues with um the way uh clocks and and power limits are handled on windows because you know in a desktop environment and even on a laptop you know it's it's not um you know getting optimal clocks isn't really a ultimate priority but it is for a handheld device um, so that has been problematic as well. Um, what I find with the A&EO devices, I mean, I've looked at the Air, I've looked at the, uh, the A&EO 2. Um, like for like with Steam Deck, it just seems that, you know, running at the same power levels, you get lower battery life overall. That's a problem, right? And um, yeah, it's going to be the same for this unless ASUS have really done some hard work on, you know, stripping out the bits of Windows that aren't actually needed for gaming. Uh, I'm really interested in this device, um, but I just think that um, Valve are actually tailoring this as a, a mainstream endeavor, right? You know, they, they realize they've got to have a front end that works. They realize they've got to optimize for, um, you know, very limited battery life. They also have a whole bunch of OS level tools aimed at optimizing the experience specific for a low power handheld that these other devices um, don't really have. They also have control over the operating system in a way that these Windows devices don't have. So, you know, there's a lot that Steam Deck has in terms of advantages, um, even though it's running games through a compatibility layer. Um, but, you know, the hardware on this really does look, <laughs> I mean, that, first class. Also, part of it is the cost, right? Valve can afford to eat some of the cost of the Steam Deck components because they are selling a storefront, right? Yeah. They're basically following the console model there. And maybe that's actually why they don't want to, uh, you know. There's something the, else. But yeah. Yeah, I get it. There's something else I noticed as well in the Linus video is that, you know, off screen play, you could see stuttering. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, that's another thing that Valve are, are taking really seriously, like right? pre-compiled shaders on Steam Decks. And, um, you know, at launch, yep. at launch, they had a better experience for Elden Ring than many desktop users because, you know, they basically looked at what the issues with the code were and then adjusted Proton to to, compat to, to compensate for it. You so, won't get that here, I'm sure. There will not no. be pre-compiled shaders for the ROG ally. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's a lot of challenges facing all of these Windows devices, and there's a lot of things that uh, Valve are doing right. But at the same time, there's, you know, I, I do think that there are issues with Steam Deck uh, running newer titles. And this is something I think yeah. we're going to be taking another look at, right, mm -hmm. Oliver? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the plan. You're, you're going to be following up your Too Big for Steam Deck video. <laughs> too Big for Steam really Deck well. Part 2. Too it's big all, this time. <laughs> way too big for Steve. Way, way too big. <laughs> uh, Just quickly, what games are you thinking of looking at on that one? Oh, let's see. RE4, Hogwarts Legacy, uh, Returnal, a number of titles, um, Dead Space. Yeah, probably six or seven in there. Wow. So, are they too big? Uh, I Some Spoilers. of them will be. <laughs> That's my spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think this device, it's interesting, but still my number one concern or kind of wish list item, and I think John would agree with this, I would love to see an OLED on one of these devices. Yeah, of I course. think it sort of sucks that you get these IPS LCDs with pretty mediocre contrast um, for playing AAA stuff, which doesn't really work. Like I was trying Resident Evil 4 on my Steam Deck the other day, and it like, you know, regardless of how well it might run or might not run, I guess you'll have to see. But uh you know, the, the contrast levels and the brightness levels don't really 
aren't really that well suited to modern game graphics, I feel like, and this device doesn't really seem to be pushing that far. Maybe the panel quality will be better, but it's still, you know, going to probably be an IPS LCD. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, that's that's the reason why, especially with smaller indie games, if you pick up a Switch OLED model versus a Steam Deck, the Switch OLED can wind up feeling more advanced and just better uh, simply due to the screen quality, even if the actual technical performance is worse. So yeah, the screen you're playing games is... like Metroid Prime Remastered, for instance. I know I think Oliver and I both played a lot of it. Yeah, it looks it looks so good on that screen, and you just can't match that on a Steam Deck, mm. unfortunately. Okay, well, um, hopefully we'll get a look at the ROG Ally sooner rather than later. I I do really want to see it, and I'm kind of interested to see what the new AMD APUs can do. Uh, something which we haven't seen in the coverage yet is is literally game performance. Um, right. I'm guessing there are embargo restrictions on uh, from AMD there. You know, they don't want uh, details of what their new processors can do out in the uh, open right now. But yeah, we'll we'll have a report on that as soon as we can. Uh, but I guess for now, we'll move on to the next news topic. John, yesterday mm-hmm. I think was uh, another example where you're almost flipping the ta- table in rage. <laughs> You weren't happy, were you? Let's be expect. No. The story here is that um, essentially uh, Xbox Series console support for emulation has basically been turned off overnight. Uh, RetroArch doesn't work on Xbox Series uh, retail consoles anymore. You have to go through the dev mode route. And uh, you're not happy, are you, John? Well, no, obviously not. Uh, this was a functionality that I've really enjoyed using, especially lately. Uh, RetroArch is an amazing piece of software for use on a console. Basically what the, what this offers is it, it allowed people to use their retail system to install these emulators on there and it functions perfectly with a controller. It's very streamlined. Uh, it's much less trouble than configuring a small PC to work on your television. Uh, and it was great for things like, one of my favorites of course was Duck Station on there. Or I it had a different name under RetroArch I guess it was a, but, you could enjoy PlayStation 1 games with all those improvements, the PGXP stuff where it solves the texture warping issues, much higher color depth, smooth gradients everywhere, just improved performance. It was a fantastic way for specific types of systems. It also supported, you know, uh, Dreamcast stuff, which Dreamcast itself, no big deal, but it did allow for like a Thomas Wave and various other arcade board uh, based, derived from the Dreamcast to work very well on the Xbox. Um, of course, there was Final Burn Neo on there for some great arcade action. And even one of the coolest things, even though I do prefer to use an actual uh, vintage PC, there was the, the DOS, DOSBox Pure, I think it was called, where you could just drop DOS games onto your Xbox, and they were basically pre-configured with controller support uh, due to how that is set up. And you could just start playing DOS games on there. It was unbelievable. And all of this was backed, you know, with RetroArch's absolutely killer CRT shader support, all these other features, everything was there. It was just a beautiful machine to configure. And I actually use this a lot on my Xbox. Uh, and it is still accessible through development mode. But unfortunately, uh, as far as I understand, you do lose some performance in that mode, especially on Series S. Uh, we need to t- double check that though, to be sure. Uh, and it also, you know, you basically have to pay for development mode on one account and you have to reboot in and out of that mode specifically making it less seamless than if you were just using it in retail mode so 
those are just some of the use cases, but yeah, they essentially just killed support for it just like that. And I'm curious to know if it's, so I actually had my Xbox in off mode. I don't use the power save or whatever the, the low power consumption mode, which allows it to remain in sleep. I had it fully off. I pulled the network plug before turning the system back on. It was not connected via Wi-Fi, And even then somehow, I guess something snuck through and it was not able to run any of these emulators. And that's, that's also a problem with things like homebrew, I guess. So basically they're disabling all this additional functionality of the Xbox, which fair, it wasn't actually an advertised feature, right? But everybody knew about this. And I know for a fact that at least two people that I know personally picked up an Xbox just for this support. Uh, and now it's just gone like that. And even though it may not have been officially promised, it leaves this bad taste in your mouth. And I really hope that they can find a way to restore it at some point. Uh, I assume there was an email going around. It's difficult to verify whether it's actually accurate, but suggesting that perhaps Nintendo had a hand in this, but which wouldn't surprise me at all. They are notoriously anti-emulation. Well, at least as far as products that they're not selling. But... Uh, Installing emulators on your device is not illegal, right? That's the thing. People, If people put illegal content on their Xbox, that's their own problem. But being able to install the emulator, that should not be forbidden by Microsoft. And it's really a shame that they're able to simply disable these now installed applications remotely. It's like, oh, you have it on your Xbox? Now we just snap our fingers and now you don't. That really, uh, that bothers me a lot that that's actually possible. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know you guys, have, I know Oliver, you've at least used this feature as well, right? Yeah. I got retro arc running. Um, it's, it's great, right? It's yeah, no, super, it's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. It was like really, yeah, really well put together. All the cores worked really well. I don't know. I, I I'm really uncomfortable with the idea that you know, you have software installed on your machine yeah. and then Microsoft just remotely disables it. And also on the basis of like relatively spurious uh, legal concerns, so just in terms of running emulators, that seems to be a pretty well-trodden um, exactly. use. So I, it just makes me uncomfortable because <laughs> you think you own something and you think you have control over it. Maybe this ties in with some of John's other thinking where, yeah, you know, you, this device is connected to the internet. It can be disabled at any time. Your licenses can be revoked according to certain terms. And uh, it's unfortunate because these worked extremely well. And yeah, it was a fantastic experience. I don't really know what to add to that. I mean, I haven't used the feature, um, but I can see how it would have extreme value. And um, also when you look at, I mean, something that I've been talking about for a long time now is just how much value you get from the Xbox Series S. Um, it's a device that's cheap to buy new. It's a device that allows, um, you know, people who aren't, you know, massively wealthy to get into the current generation of games in a way that you can't do on PC, in a way that you can't do on PlayStation because, the, you know, the, the console's $500. The other thing I love about the Series S is that for whatever reason, it's incredibly cheap on the used market. So, you know. Yeah, you're right. I regularly see Series S uh, on Facebook Marketplace for about £100. And when you consider the amount of technology you're getting for that £100 as a used product, and the fact that it is basically the way it was designed, it's essentially bulletproof. So I don't really have too many concerns about buying a used 
um, Series S. It's bringing gaming to a, a you know to a, a really wide audience there, and I, I really love the the concept behind the Series S, which is you know Microsoft foresaw that consoles are getting more expensive, and um, you know they need to do something about it, and then to have on top of that you know basically access to all of these games you know from prior generations and delivered in such a really impressive manner it's obviously extremely sad that that has just been snuffed out at a stroke and um you know i guess we have to chase for some comment from microsoft and to see whether they'll actually want to talk about it but it's just a real shame right and um also, I think one of the reasons why the Xbox platform hasn't been hacked is because of the open access that they provide uh, via the UWP. And, you know, obviously UWP hasn't been like greatly maintained moving into the current generation, but it does work. And the idea that actually now Microsoft is going to be uh, more stringent in how open the system is, uh, is actually quite unfortunate. And you know, Rich, the other thing that springs to mind here is uh, whether or not they have this sort of control on a Windows PC as well, right? Like, what's right. The stopping them from disabling applications they don't like in the future? I think uh, that would be really difficult for them to enforce. I, I, absolutely, I, th I think so too, but at least on the UWP side, they probably could do it, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, because that is their, you know, it, the, the content is delivered via the store, right? And the store is their domain. Yeah. So yeah, mm -hmm. I don't know. That that's just it's a real bummer. I'm really sad <laughs> that they that they decided to take this approach and I can only hope that they somehow find a way to reverse it. That Yeah, you know, absolutely. I mean, it, you know, I guess there was a lot of uh, talk yesterday on Twitter about how it was kind of inevitable. Yeah, um, but still but it's still, you know, you know, sad. it's more like I could understand it if they disabled it disabled people from installing new copies of these emulators but it's more i take issue with their ability to deactivate already installed software on the console that's yeah that's my absolutely. big problem with it right there i don't feel they should be able to do that absolutely i guess that's all we've really got to say about that at the moment um a bit sad but it is let's this, move on. this generation though, is just, it's so interesting i was trying to i was doing an exercise here thinking about like uh, do you can you guys list the number of of Xbox Series S slash X games that are like actually next gen only, like games crafted just for those machines that appear nowhere else? Uh, well, how many like, are there? You mean on other consoles rather than yeah, yeah Hi-Fi Rush. Is, so there's Hi-Fi Rush. We get that one. Yeah, Flight Simulator. Flight Simulator. Yep. There is a bunch of them, right? You know, well, it, it, but I think your point is there's not many. Are there, are there the, others than those two? The medium? No, oh. no, that's on PS5. Oh, so you're talking about pure Xbox next generation yeah. exclusives. Yeah, they are thin on the ground. I think that's fair to say. I but, don't know. I just, between that and like, it, and this applies to all the consoles. I just feel like this generation, we're already like, we're going to be three years in this year. And it just feels, it feels to me like the generation has not started yet. And I understand the COVID situation and, and game development is taking longer than ever, but it just feels like the generation actually hasn't really started. Like we're just, it feels like we're stuck in the first year of the console, basically. 
I get what you're saying because if you go back to 2013 and the uh, the launch of Xbox One and PlayStation Four, you know they launched with, you know, more than two exclusive games <laughs> in their I launch mean, windows. <laughs> the Xbox One was much maligned by many people. It was not a popular machine initially. Microsoft had to fight to win back that mindshare, but. If you look at the first couple of years of Xbox One, there were actually a lot of first-party games from Microsoft for that thing, right? It was very well supported out of the gate, much more so than we're seeing this time. Uh, mm. And it's also the same with PS4, where, you know, there was just a ton of stuff coming out for those machines. And there was still a cross-gen period there, but it felt like it was really well supported. And again, I understand development has changed a lot, but you go back even further, like, look at, like, PlayStation 2, Right. And the amount of stuff that launched in 2001, like its first year, it had some decent stuff, but 2001, it was packed with so many games. It saw the beginning of so many new franchises. It was just absolutely amazing. And that's also the year that Xbox and GameCube hit. Like there was just this constant stream of new, amazing things that we'd never seen before. Brand new IP, amazing sequels, everything. And then you look at like this generation and it's just, it feels so flat and empty in a way that's extremely discouraging to me. And uh, Well, this is a completely different topic, but I'm on board to discuss it, right? I think there's a lot of factors to... Uh, <laughs> yeah, to, no, to I know. It's just, and I was I, thinking about, about this only because of the emulation stuff, right? Because I was talking with somebody about it, and we all kind of realized like this emulation stuff is was one of the things that we've used the console the most for, right? right. It's like, well, why is that? that? That doesn't make much sense. And not just the unofficial emulation, but also the backwards compatible stuff, the official emulation from Microsoft. I've also used that more often in general than any, any new software. And uh, it's just weird that we're in that position, I think. Um, well, I think we're in that position for two reasons. First of all, as you've pointed out many yeah. times, the cost of making a game and the time it takes to make a game now is far, far longer than it was yeah. you know, for the launch of PlayStation 2 or whatever. And secondly, the weird thing about this generation is that it's the first time where all of the platform holders are using um, what you might call uh, next generation versions of their existing architectures which has opened the door to cross-gen in a way that simply wasn't possible yeah. with PlayStation 3 and, um, and Xbox 360, Boy, right? So that's right. why we are where we are, right? And I actually think at this point, bearing in mind how difficult it was for them to make PlayStation 5 and Series X, um, the task of actually uh, producing a mid-generation refresh or indeed an actual entire new console generation means that I think we're kind of now stuck in... Um, a perpetual cross-gen situation. It's basically the uh, phone model at this point. The, fo the phone model, but not an upgrade every couple of years. Right, right. Like Less every, often, with a lower frequency, but a similar four concept. years, let's say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's that's where I think we're at, and I think you know that's that is going to actually just change the whole shape of the way games are, are made, and also the kind of vaulting ambition that we saw with the launch of new consoles is going to be more muted, you know. I think yeah. at some point, we, you know, it's not so far now where we are going to be at the 10-year anniversary of, like, Killzone Shadowfall. <laughs> and um, it it's, wasn't it's really... Year, right? Yeah, it'd be later this year. We're already past the 10-year anniversary of its reveal, which was uh, February 2013. I feel like that's a game I've been wanting to revisit on the channel because... Absolutely, uh, yeah. There's a lot of amazing stuff there. 
It's basically yeah, it's retro Ten years. and uh, <laughs> it's it's full sixty <laughs> FPS finally if you play it on the PS five, so <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. That and uh I also feel like Rise would deserves a, a another mention because Killzone and Rise were the two showpieces back in twenty thirteen for their respective consoles and they hold up really well today. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely. quite surprising. Yeah, but that's the way I think about this current generation is that, um, you know, it, you're right, it hasn't really begun yet because we still haven't fully jettisoned the last generation machines yet. But, you know, we'll get there. I mean, if you think about what's happening in the last sort of year and if it had happened, you know, a couple of years earlier, you know, stuff like Plague Tale Requiem, for example, really does push visuals. If that had been a launch game, it would have been entirely doable. I if, mean, if- yeah thinking about launch stuff is what like i feel like the biggest misstep here ever like in the history of oh it's halo infinite like halo infinite (laughs) was supposed to be a launch game for xbox if that had come out series x and s exclusive and they had actually managed to pull it all off just i feel like they would have uh had a ton of strength getting off the starting line there like that's what we needed is like a really high quality Halo game at launch, just like that original Xbox. Obviously, we know that would not have been possible in retrospect, but man, if that had been pulled off, uh, whew, what yeah. a difference. But uh, I would like to say just one quick thing, which is we've seen not just Plague Tale, but also Dead Space, I thought, at least after the patching effort. That was like a very good-looking and capable current-gen only game. That it, it, what, is, it is very nice-looking, but I wouldn't say it looks better than say the callisto protocol overall oh no and and callisto is cross-gen cross, although yeah. those cross-gen versions you know <laughs> they have their own problems but still <laughs> just in terms of like a, an accomplished current generally title that at least shows some maturity with the hardware i think maybe that shows it but also i think games that are coming up this year like final fantasy 16 Fort similar yeah, sports for spider-man sure. 2 like i think this is really going to be the year that we see cross-gen jettisoned not just in terms of games not being released on last-gen consoles of which most titles big titles this year are not getting released on last-gen consoles but in terms of games that really do push the current gen hardware in the way that we probably expected we would see a lot earlier but yeah, I feel like the two examples that still stick out for me are Ratchet and the Demon Souls remake. Yeah, it's completely. Just looking well beyond what you would have seen on last gen machines, and mm-hmm. then just sort of faded away after that. Like we've not seen anything quite as impressive as that. I feel Ratchet looks then. awesome. Ratchet's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, it's so good looking. Well, it was cross gen, but Horizon, of course. Yeah, Horizon is but- very impressive. And we should be seeing the PS5 only DLC like, Actually, within bo- weeks. I would now. say both Horizons, if you know what I mean, Forza Horizon <laughs> and, and Horizon Forbidden West. Those are beautiful games. Okay, well that took a bit of a left turn, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just yeah, it's been on your mind, John. I know it has been, and this just yeah. like kind of pushed me over the edge. Like, what are we even doing here, guys? Come on, <laughs> we're playing games. <laughs> I want this stuff better. Ah. <laughs> uh. Okay, well, that's it. That's the end of the news for this week. Let's move on to supporter Q&A. This is the area of the show where, as usual, we select a bunch of questions put forward by uh, our supporters on our Patreon. So, yeah, if you want to get involved, uh, patreon.com forward slash digital foundry. Join us. 
get involved. There's amazing stuff happening on our, on our supports program, including Q&A. And uh, we're going to start with this question from Manny Mao. Do you think generative AI, chat G GPT style bots could have a role to play in gaming, such as RPG characters that never run out of dialogue? What about generative image AI? Could it somehow play a role in game visuals, either in real time or during development? So Oliver, you're on top of AI in a way. He's our AI man. Yeah, nobody else on the team is. Uh, you're fully generative. What do you think of this? Uh, yeah, I think completely. <laughs> We've already seen there There was an old experimental game from 2006 called Facade. It was like this flash game where you typed in oh, things yeah. to, to a character. It was very primitive. So the idea of typing in um, custom responses and getting responses back, that's been a thing for a long time. And... Uh, there was AI Dungeon, which was originally based on GPT-2, um, and then updated to GPT-3, which was basically just a kind of like a mud, <laughs> a text dungeon game that you just type things in and it types things back and it was totally free form. So th there are examples of this already, and I covered this in my video, but um, yeah, I think it could be brought much further. I think the hard part of it would be integrating it with game mechanics, because, like, if you have a character who says, like, oh, I'm going to hurt you because you said something mean to me, you know, you need to have that tie into the game and actually getting that interface with that AI language model, even if the language model is very complex, that's maybe harder. In terms of image AI, there are a lot of potential uses for creating game art, obviously, um, and not just concept art, like lots of texture art and things like this. Again, I go over this in pretty excruciating detail in my video. But to me, the most interesting stuff that I'm kind of thinking about now is um, using AI for user-generated content in the game. So like if you're playing a game and you're making a game avatar, maybe you type in a prompt instead of using sliders or something, you get a really interesting looking result, a really cool looking result. And then maybe that's your game character and they make different poses and different expressions out of that base art. That'd be really interesting. And in particular, it's interesting because stable diffusion um, models can, are free and open source and you can download them. So if you include the stable diffusion model with your game, which is about four to seven gigabytes, depending on the model, you can run that all offline on a graphics card that your user might have or a console um, GPU that your user might have. So it's all very, like it's all very feasible, I think even within current timelines and without an internet connection or paying money to a service. So I think- we'll Isn't see. it the case, sorry, isn't it the case that there's actually a lot of energy consumed in, in, the, in processing these prompts, which may not be a good fit for a console? Well, it would it would it wouldn't be the kind of thing that you would render out in, uh, you know, it wouldn't be like you ask for it and it pops up a second later. It would be like a twenty second lag, ten second lag, forty second lag. Like there would be a, a, a period when it was processing, right? But once the image is generated, obviously there's no continuing energy use. I'm thinking more of the uh, the concept of talking to an NPC in a game. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, so style. it would depend if you're running it on the device locally. Um, it would need to be one of the smaller models to run efficiently and well, especially in the context of a 3D game. But it really depends because for the most part, people who have made games using these language models are just using the OpenAI uh, GPT API. So they're just querying to um, high-end server hardware basically and getting those responses back. Uh, there are ways to run large language models locally, but those are more primitive. Um, but I mean, 
I'm sure it could happen. I think that actually could suffice, though, and would be preferable to relying entirely on servers. But yeah, uh, mainly for incidental dialogue, right? Not for main important conversations. But uh, I, I do think it would add a lot of flavor if you just had additional uh, sort of dialogue options from random NPCs walking around the world that actually sort of vary up what you hear. Yeah. But not in a way that would actually impact the gameplay. It could be restricted, right? To prevent things from saying like, oh, the AI is now mad at you and now you have to engage in combat, right? Like that could be restricted, I'd assume. Yeah. Like you give it the instruction to respond to the player in a conversational way right. that it avoids yeah. topics exactly. that might lead to in-game actions. And then you'd also maybe pair that with a speech synthesis. So you type in your queries, the NPC spits out a response, and it's actually a voice dialogue. Like all this stuff is theoretically possible now. It just depends on people to chain together various implementations. We've already seen a lot of people pushing into the old school text adventure game model using uh, GPT and the like, and that actually seems to work pretty well. But I'm thinking more, do you remember the old Sierra uh, graphic adventure games where you would actually have to type in they had like a parser and you would type in your desired action into there and you know get sort of a response but it was always frustrating because it was heavily limited in terms of what you could actually do this would be a pretty neat use for that and i would like to see some like classic sierra style adventures revived using a sort of a gpt model it would yeah. be it, for it to properly work it would need to be you physically talking to them within a game right you the yeah. concept of typing wouldn't work on a console for starters no 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 absolutely not but i don't know you know i just find the idea of uh, having extended conversations with an npc a bit of a blind alley because it's mm -hmm. you know it's basically slowing down the game and um yeah i mean i have to find uh, the bing uh ai and it's i don't know it seems to be what about aggressive <laughs> So, like, imagine you're playing, like, The Witcher 3, and you're going through yeah. the world, and there's a ton of NPCs, and they all have the option to interact with them, but unless they're key to the story, you simply tap a button and they play a pre-recorded line. It would be interesting if they could attach sort of, like, uh, some sort of indicator to, like, the clothing you're wearing or whatever options or weapons you're holding and, like, feed that into the model yeah. in the background, and then as you pass AI, they might, for instance, comment on... Uh, what you're wearing or what you're doing and like f basically find ways to sort of tie the player into the world through this incidental dialogue that's not part of the story but it would sort of flesh out the world and make it more believable that you're there rather than them just going like hmm or what do you want you know stuff like that yeah. which is currently I, what they do i think the potential for these kinds of technologies is is very large and untapped and i'm sure people oh, yeah. will come up with all kinds of crazy things because once you have like this very capable language model you can really start to, I think, go nuts with a lot of stuff. And like you said, it would be really cool to see like custom game reactions according to your character, according to play exactly. style. Feeding all these things, that'd be awesome. Okay, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Stephen Hall. Uh, would upgrading from 16 gigs to 32 gigabytes of system RAM help at all with VRAM bottlenecks on a GPU having 8 gigabytes of RAM? Simple question, simple answer, no. Nope. Um, <laughs> nope. The the issue here is basically you've got two separate pools of memory, right? And um, what happens when the GPU memory is full is that it actually starts to shuttle data back and forth with your system memory. And so it's not really how much system memory you have uh, that, di that dictates, you know, what actually happens here. It's the speed of the transfer between those two pools. And ideally, they shouldn't really be shuttling back and forth at all. You know, system memory should be 
feeding the GPU, but it you know it shouldn't be uh, being used as a um, you know a, a kind of low latency pool of extra memory. I do think that there is probably a way, and I think Marvel Spider-Man might be doing it, where the system memory is used for kind of like low priority art, uh, which which but that again you know that wouldn't really affect. Uh, wouldn't really change by having um you know 32 gigs instead of 16 gigs but man you know this whole vram issue um you know it's uh it is tricky at the moment right because we are actually seeing you know we are moving away from um games that were de designed for 8 gigabyte consoles and you know we are seeing on you know suboptimal releases that 8 gigs is is proving problematic i think more uh, challenging is the fact that if you want to have, you know, we've got like a, a GPU like the 3070, for example, which is really quite capable, but um, it doesn't have enough VRAM for raid facing. It's held back, um, yeah. It, so, it's, you know, if you're using high-end raid facing features and you don't have enough system memory, uh, that's that's problematic. And, you know, I'm, I'm seeing the rumors that 4060 and 4060 Ti will be 8 gig cards, and I'm just... I'm pleading with Nvidia not to do that, you know, because it would that just would be, be disastrous. A terrible idea. Well, you know, I'm going to, you know, um, say that ideally a 4060 level product should be giving you a console style experience. Um, that's pretty much what the 3060 does. I mean, it's raster falls a bit short of uh, what a PlayStation 5 can do, but you know, you factor in DLSS, you factor in the extra ray tracing power. And uh, that's actually quite a decent GPU, I think. And it's got 12 gigs of RAM. So that it's bypassing this entire controversy in a way that the far more capable 3060 Ti and the 3070 are not. So yeah. um, there's there's two ways. I mean, there's two ways to look at it. First of all, um, I don't think that um, 60 class products and above should have 8 gigs of VRAM um, if they're releasing now. But I also think that... Um, you know, per Alex's comments last week, it has been established at this point that there are ways to ensure that an eight gigabyte uh, GPU can give you a console-like experience. And um, it does require engineering effort from the developers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess that's that's that. It's funny, this, this question sort of reminded me back, uh, one of my first 3D graphics cards in the 90s, it, it shipped with my PC, it was a Matrox Mystique two megabyte and back then the way v vram management worked like if you loaded up a game like i remember with this this occurring with tomb raider 2 uh it it really wanted four megs of vram rather than two but you could still play it the pro and, but if you increased your resolution too much rather than erroring out or running slower it would simply just not draw textures so like when it ran out of vram the textures would stop drawing so you would just see, see flat white shaded polygons <laughs> It's wow, a, it's really funny to think about that 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 actually could occur, but that's the way it kind of was back then. So wild, just to be clear, times. just to be clear, this would have been years before you invested in your evil commando GPU. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean this this would have been like ninety six or something like that, uh, if I recall. But yeah, a long time before the evil commando, which <laughs> the evil commando was a great graphics card. That was the Radeon uh, ninety seven hundred series, which was excellent. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't at all evil. And it there was, was no it was not evil. That's right. <laughs> this is what we need for the uh, next generation of GPUs. We need more, more VRAM. And we need absurd, absurd names. 
we I need, guess like, we had the uh, the speeds to Merc uh, for the sixty. True, but we're, we're also missing graphics card art. They were where they yes. would like cover the the shroud and this like wondrous artwork, and you're like, okay, this is fantastic. You just put like Ruby on there on the AMD side, or like a giant like machine gun, or like uh, a dude with sunglasses, just right on your graphics card, just looking the, at you. The dream combination of that artwork and RGB lighting. It scarcely bears thinking about. Right? Man, it's, it's a market <laughs> waiting to be tapped once again. Uh, Oliver, you've just bought a forty ninety, right? Yes, twenty four gigs, uh, I think, on that, right? Yeah, so you're not, you know, you're not really worried about VRAM <laughs> issues right uh, now. Uh, which, which model did you get in the end? I got. An does MS- it have Does it have flashy lighting? <laughs> well, it, it has lighting, but I turn it off usually. It's uh, the MSI. Trio Gaming X Trio, I think. Oh, okay. Which is like the wow. has the ignominious distinction of being the only launch model without a vapor chamber, I think. But it wow. was cheaper. But it's it's yeah, it's perfectly fine. That's the job. Yeah, I mean, the enough. coolers in those things are gigantic. I mean, it's, it's unreal, big. Right? Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. Crazy stuff. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one from the Phantom Nort. Uh, with multiple in-game character revealed trailers for Tekken 8 being shown off, have you folks noticed any Unreal Engine 5 specific features or is the Tekken project team playing safe with not going all out in order to maintain 60 frames per second? Uh, So, John, you and I looked at the recent um, footage that's come out for Tekken uh, 8. It is uh, Unreal Engine 5, but to answer the question... No, <laughs> yes, no it, that's the it case. It's not utilizing Lumen or Nanite. It seems to me more like, you know, Unreal Engine 5 is really, it's a continuation of Unreal Engine 4, but with a lot of new features in place and improvements made. I assume that they're just working within the Unreal Engine 5 environment, but given when this game likely started development and, you know, the maturation of those specific techniques, I can see why they may have opted to stick with uh, the more traditional options. Like we've seen Fortnite with Lumen running, Fort, Lumen and Nanite running at 60 FPS on these machines, right? But I think for Epic to get to that point, it would have been far too late for Namco to integrate that into Tekken 8, given where they are at with development right now. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's pretty obvious that frame rate was their number one priority. It's a fighting game, so it can't drop frames, or at least it shouldn't drop frames. Uh, so yeah, it's, I I think it's a nice looking game, but it's not a game that's going to push any technical boundaries, which is a shame because that used to be something that fighting games could offer. You, you would get just like cutting edge visuals because you're just rendering two people and a background rather than a large world. And it was always used as a showcase and we're just not really seeing that anymore. And that's a shame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, any thoughts on this one, Oliver? Yeah, I'm just looking at some footage now. I think that Tekken has a very stylized art style, or at least Tekken 8 does. And the lighting to me does not look like it would be an obviously necessarily a great fit, at least in the gameplay. Right. For something like Lumen, and also the fast movement to the characters would probably induce, like if you did have ray traced lighting systems, it might look fairly artifact ridden. You know, I think maybe for some categories of titles, there will be aspect of the Wii 5 feature set that aren't necessarily appropriate. And I think when you look at Tekken 8, it looks perfectly good. It doesn't look fantastic. Clearly, they're not using a lot of these features, but maybe that's not such a bad thing. I think the point is that the early trailers did actually look absolutely fantastic. Well, those were more cinematic, weren't they? Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. 
which may you know kind of hinted that maybe there was like some sort of you know awesome technical showcase heading our way but actually it's just looking like a really good looking game based on current you know rendering uh, concepts i think the other thing i think something you mentioned there oliver is when you look at some of the rt um uh, techniques that are in play they're based on the concept of accumulation yeah and uh when you look at how fast <laughs> a fighting game is it's probably not a good fit for that in the here and now certainly as it were bring back that <laughs> tekken 6 style motion blur and then we'll talk <laughs> the... bring bring back virtual fighter 3's undulating <laughs> terrain oh yeah that was a that was an awesome idea we haven't really seen that since. Yeah, they were one of the uh, developers to really pioneer using uh, IK for foot placement. Uh, and it was yeah. absolutely stunning at the time. Absolutely, yeah. Um, let's move on to the next question. This one from Blim. And uh, he's uh, getting straight to it. Look, I'm being blunt. <laughs> when can we get an affordable graphics card that holds 60 fps with raid facing consistently uh, this is an interesting question because the steam hardware survey was updated this week and um uh, at the number one spot now um with around 10 percent of uh, market share is the rtx 3060 um which i would argue possibly hits that target with using dlss um um with uh a performance mode, or I guess balanced in 1440p. I, I guess it's possible to do that. Certainly you can do it with Marvel's Spider-Man. Um, and affordability, I guess it, you know, the concept that it's the number one GPU on Steam suggests that it's affordable. Um, but at the same time, you know, we've got uh, um, a lot of games that are pushing raid facing even harder now. It all depends really on a number of things, right? What is your resolution target? Um, do you want to run everything ultra i mean it's just kind of like a shifting target yeah really. there, there is no like singular answer to this question i think right because mm. all ray tracing is not created equally as well right, right? there's no card yes. you can say yeah across the board this will just do ray tracing like you know <laughs> slam the side of this this bad boy can handle all the ray tracing you throw at it and you're, it's a but no that's not that's not a case especially you know if you want to play these path traced games uh, right now <laughs> yes. you're certainly going to have a bad time on any card that's not very high yeah. and inexpensive <laughs> yeah i mean the msrp obviously a lot of the 3060s would have been sold way above msrp but you know the 330 dollars um it seems to actually have worked as a price point uh in theory if it, if it's actually hitting the uh the, the number one spot at this point the prices do seem to have calmed down on the 30 series cards mm -hmm. so uh, I, I think part of the problem with a question like this is basically that over time it seems like even over the course of this generation because we have advanced ray tracing because we have path tracing potentially in certain games that might be upcoming um this is not a this is very much a moving target and the bar will always be getting erased according to what the very fastest graphics cards can handle so i don't think you're ever going to get to a point where you can say this card definitively will last me for x number of years or for the entire generation because people will always be pushing up the bar with ray tracing mm. i actually think what we're really waiting for is the first big unreal engine 5 games to ship with lumen and nanite and hardware support because there are a lot of games in development using this engine, right? They're just, they're not here yet. And I think once they land and we see how they perform across a wide range of hardware, we'll have a better idea of where people should be aiming in terms of uh, GPU purchases. 
Yeah, I've got to admit, I really kind of want to see how the RT Overdrive version of Cyberpunk works on an RTX 3060. That's going to be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if it works at all. Uh, let's move on to the next question. This one from Joachim Ahern. Uh, thank you guys for all the hard work. How do you guys feel about the rather sparse implementation of ray tracing in games that promised them, the promised RT, but didn't have at launch, such as ray, um, such as Halo Infinite, A Plague Tale, Requiem, Elden Ring, and so on? Should developers even bother adding them in a patch if they do nothing but destroy performance with little visual improvement? Atomic Heart should be getting it soon, right? Um Mm, this is a, a naughty one, yeah. isn't it? I think, you know, the concept of Elden Ring introducing ray tracing a year on from release uh, is kind of like, well, we've talked about this one at length, right? It's the wrong priority for that game. Uh, Halo Infinite, you know, the, the deployment of ray tracing is very limited. Doesn't really add anything mm -hmm. substantial to the game. The question is, should it have, you know, I can think of better things that maybe the Halo team should have been doing instead of that. I think um, patching in ray tracing support post-release is only valuable if it adds significantly to the visuals, like we're seeing with the Cyberpunk Overdrive stuff, right? That yeah. is valuable because it's pushing technology to a new level. That's interesting. And people are what will want to revisit the game for that. But if it's just like ray traced shadows a year on, it, it feels like a waste of engineering time. Hmm. Yeah. Thoughts, Oliver? Well... Yeah, I mean, I generally agree. If it if it takes a substantial amount of effort to implement this stuff, especially in games that already have pretty pronounced technical issues like Elden Ring, it does seem like a bit of a waste of time. It depends, I guess, in the game. Like some games, like I, I kind of like the implementation of Ray Trace Shadows in Halo Infinite, but it is extremely limited because it's only on PC, at least for now. It'll be on Xbox at some point, I believe they said, but and it's only in multiplayer. And it's just kind of like, yeah. why do you spend, what, if this did take a significant amount of engineering effort, there are definitely things about Halo Infinite's visuals that I'd like to see improved that maybe don't Precisely. involve ray tracing. <laughs> so, uh, or if they're going seem... to implement ray tracing, there are many other uh, rasterized faults in the visuals that could use correction. Yeah. Specifically their lighting system, mm -hmm. which is pretty bad. Yeah. I mean, uh, Joaquim here is talking about Atomic Heart. This is a really interesting one because... Um, John, we were actually at the 2018 launch of Turing, uh, the GPU yeah, architecture yeah. that brought ray tracing. And Atomic Heart was actually one of the demos we saw. That's right. And it, it seemed to be doing some crazy stuff like full Hall of Mirrors type reflections. And I'm just wondering whether, you know, this kind of stuff just wasn't really workable. I wonder, was I can't recall the development history of this game, but was this always intended to release on consoles? So I swear in my head, it feels like it was like, going to be a high-end pc showcase exclusively at some point maybe that's not true but and that might just be colored by the fact that it was always demonstrated alongside with pc graphics cards but uh i don't know maybe something shifted at some point they're like oh we actually need to get this game done and, and we got to release it on consoles <laughs> it did look highly impressive but it also looked highly uh taxing on resources so i'm yeah. wondering whether it was uh something that couldn't be deployed to, to users um but yeah, this is the other thing which kind of frustrates me is that, you know, you get um, marketing hype for these RT features that don't appear. And then suddenly it's complete radio silence from the developer. Uh, you know, at the very least, tell us what's going on, right? It doesn't seem right. 
Um, let's move on to the final question. And as usual, or has been for the last couple of weeks, it's not a question. Uh, this one from uh, Roll, not a question, but this is one of the best banners of all time. I legit thought it was three times rich for a second, uh, which would be completely meaningless to the audience. But basically, every time I put out a call to questions on uh, uh, for, for the next TF Direct Weekly, I put together a fake thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> of showing you team members and this week it's me dr evil and blofeld uh <laughs> um but yeah it's just a bit of fun you know the stuff that we do on the supporter program just you know extra extra lulls but that's kind of it really um but the concept that he thought it was me in three different perspectives does make me chuckle <laughs> you can pull off the villain look <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's it that's the end of the show for this week uh, please do like subscribe share if you did enjoy it ring the bell for those uh, I'm, I'm, I'm back to saying notional in, uh, notionally instant notifications because uh, I'm no longer getting instant notifications from that channel that I really don't like that one of you guys actually subscribed me to so back to notionally instant notifications <laughs> Uh, and yeah, of course, the DF Supports program, as always, join us. A lot of bonus material, early access, and a lot of great stuff going on there. But that's all from us for this week. See you next week. <laughs>